beginning a new series on the subject of creation and evolution, and I'm going to be working with Stacy Little on this series. So I'm going to introduce the subject today and next Sunday, and then Lord willing, Stacy's going to come and teach for several weeks. He's been doing some of this with our men's forum, and all of us who have been there for that have been so pleased and impressed with what he's done. I'm setting you up, Stacy, so that you know the expectations are very high. Uh, but he's done a great job, and we think that everyone would benefit from the work that he's done. Now, the, the kinds of things I'm going to be talking about are, are somewhat different from what he will be doing, uh, but I think they'll dovetail nicely together. So let me uh, begin that introduction today and talk about the, the subject of origins. I think in in the subject of origins, which is one of the most fundamental questions we always have to ask about uh, life, where did we come from, how did this all get started, we have, at the end of the day, there may be variations of this, we have something that's called exclusive alternatives. It's one or the other. Either God created the cosmos out of nothing, or else the cosmos created itself out of nothing. Those are the only two alternatives at the end of the day. Either Adam was the first man from whom all mankind descended, or else there was a first cell from which all living creatures descended. In either case, there's there's a beginning. Um, These are the only two alternatives. Either life is the product of intelligent design and purpose, or else it is the product of random forces and inevitably purposelessness. Those are the only two alternatives. Either history is headed toward a specific destination, or else it has no specific destination. These are the only two alternatives. And I'm sure that we could continue to lay out uh, similar exclusive alternatives as we discuss this essential topic of origins. We are left with these choices. It was either natural or supernatural. It was, it's either based upon mutations or design, meaninglessness or meaning. Every worldview must answer three fundamental questions. Where did we come from? In other words, what are, what are, the, what are our origins? Or the second question, why are we here? Is there any meaning to what's going on right now? And then ultimately, where are we going? What is our destination? Is there some goal that all of this is headed toward? Those are all fundamental questions that every worldview must answer. And, and so to not answer is an answer. To say, I don't know, is an answer. Um, caught up in this discussion, we need to recognize this is not just a hobby here for those who happen to like this kind of thing. But caught up in this discussion are questions of philosophy, theology, anthropology, history, science, reason, faith, and much, much more. Really, everything. In other words, uh, we have to understand that the answer to these questions have an inescapable impact on our ethics, our sociology, politics, religion, education, family, and again, much, much more. 
In other words, everything is affected by how we answer these critical questions. Ideas have consequences. Life and death consequences. I could not possibly overstate how important this is. It literally has life and death consequences. So, for example, it matters if human beings are made in the image of God and have infinite, I mean, have eternal value versus the products of matter and motion where there is no value, where in the end we dissipate back into the cosmos and the molecules start over in some new form. That has implications for politics, for policy, for what we decide to do with human beings before they're born, when they get old or infirm. They have to do with how wars are fought, whether we send uh, countless men and women to their deaths in order to achieve an objective. It has to do with policy, other political policy, and how uh, wealth is distributed and managed. And so that's just to touch on a few of those things. And so we're always driven back to this other question of epistemology. How do we know? How do we go about answering those questions? What do we know? How do we know it? How do reason and faith interact with each other? How do we go about doing an internal critique of various worldviews to see if they're consistent? What are the preconditions of us knowing things? Are our worldviews consistent? Are they arbitrary? Well, I want to just lay out the contrast a bit. And today I'm just, again, setting the table of why I think this subject is so critical and important for the church, for you, and uh, for going forward. The Bible claims that before the world, the cosmos, was created, Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting You are God. And so the Bible declares and reveals that God is pre-existent, that He is before the created order. He is eternal. And then the opening verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a pretty powerful statement. We're going to see that one of the reasons the book of Genesis is so central to undermining the Christian faith, the attacking of the book of Genesis is critical to that process. That opening declaration is either true or false. Colossians 1.16, For by Him, that is by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. That's saying something uh, else about the cosmos, that it's not simply what we can see or measure or weigh, that there are realities that are indeed invisible. Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. By faith, we read in Hebrews 11:3 that we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, information, if you will, intelligence, framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So again, we're learning something about the nature of the world that we live in and how it came to be. 
that information preceded the material world. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. In other words, the Bible says there's plenty of evidence. Evidence everywhere. In fact, Romans 1, 19-20 says, What may be known of God is manifest in them, that is, in mankind, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without an excuse. The Bible points us to the natural revelation where God can be seen. Paul Garner, in his book, The New Creationism, points to four areas where God is clearly seen in the cosmos. The immensity of the cosmos, the complexity of the cosmos, the beauty of the cosmos, and the regularity of the cosmos. The biblical view of the world had come to be the dominant view of Europe and America by the 18th, by the end, or during the 18th and the early 19th centuries. And while there have always been challenges to this, uh, by the mid 19th century, there would there would be offered a new form to this challenge with Darwin's publication of his most famous book on the origin of species, 1859. Now, I want us to consider, now, we mentioned the claims of the Bible. What are some of the claims of the materialists? Dr. Greg Bonson wrote, Darwin's evolutionary speculation was a direct assault upon the biblical doctrine of creation and thereby challenged the existence of the personal, transcendent, sovereign God of Christianity. If man emerged from some supposed primordial slime, the eventual implication could be nothing less than the death of the Christian faith. By undermining biblical creation, the theory of evolution also changed the course of philosophy, science, and culture. He continues, Charles Darwin was well aware of this fact. In one of his early notebooks, he records the prophetic statement that his theory of evolution would affect the whole of metaphysics, that is, the underlying principles of every field of study. Uh, Josiah Royce commented, with the one exception of Newton's Principia, no single book of empirical science has ever been more, uh, been of more importance to philosophy than the work of Darwin. Again, Bonson continues, Darwin called men away from the common presupposition of a decreed, mature creation of all things by a personal God, by replacing this presupposition with that of evolution, Darwin altered the entire direction and thrust of the next centuries, and really up to the present time, next century's thinking. According to scientist and author Henry Morris, and I'll warn you now in this presentation, I'm going to be quoting a lot of people because uh, these are the folks that have studied this. And basically what I've done is gone out and gathered these up to, to present them to you. Um, 
Henry Morris said it was that prince of evolutionary astronomers, Harlow Shapley, longtime head of the Harvard University Observatory, who long ago pontificated that people today should rewrite the first verse of Genesis, which we just quoted in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, according to him, it should be something like, in the beginning, hydrogen created the heavens and the earth. Evolution is the basic presupposition of the unbeliever, as well as many professing Christians who have bought into this. It is the only alternative to special creation. It has various faces, not only Darwinism or even biological evolution, but what we see very quickly is it is actually a philosophy of life or a worldview that permeates every field of study. Renowned French zoologist and former president of the Academy of Sciences and editor of the 52-volume Traité de Zoé, uh, Pierre-Paul Grassi said, um, directed by all-powerful selection, natural selection, chance becomes a sort of providence which under the cover of atheism is not named but secretly worshipped. So it's a different God. It's a different, it's replacing the creator God with another God, with a God of nature, a God of, uh, that automatically produces the things that we see. And he says that uh, the reality is this is there's a, it's secretly worship. This is this is an idol. This is uh, occupying that place, the highest place, the highest authority. The impact of evolutionary assumptions then has yielded a broad harvest. Henry Morris noted that quote evolutionary theory does indeed dominate modern thought in virtually every field. Every discipline of study, every level of education, and every area of practice. That's a pretty, uh, in other words, everything. That's how important this is. And Julian Huxley, the 19th century British evolutionary biologist and eugenicist, said, The concept of evolution was soon extended into other than biological fields. Inorganic subjects such as the, life, as the life history of the stars and the formation of the chemical elements on one hand, and on the other subjects like linguistics, social anthropology, and comparative law and religion began to be studied from an evolutionary angle until today we are enabled to see evolution as a universal and all-pervading process. The evolutionary worldview is the worldview diametrically opposing the Christian worldview. They're both comprehensive views of the world. It is an idol and a false religion, and so it is not merely a biological theory of little significance. Therefore, Christians ignore it uh, or compromise with it at great peril. It colors the examination and the interpretation of every fact. Where we came from has everything to do with where we're going. Again, Henry Morris in his book, The Long War Against God, wrote, The denial of God, rejecting the reality of supernatural creation and the Creator's sovereign rule of the world, has always been the root cause of every human problem. 
this evolutionary, humanistic, pantheistic, even atheistic worldview has taken many different forms over the ages, varying with the time and the culture, but it has always been there in one guise or the other, or another, to turn the hearts and minds of people away from their maker. There has, indeed, been an age-long war against God. It has been going on from the beginning of time. Harvard professor Dr. Ernst Meyer said, Man's worldview today is dominated by the knowledge that the universe, the stars, the earth, and all living things have evolved through a long history that was not foreordained or programmed. I am taking a new look at the Darwinian Revolution of 1859, perhaps the most fundamental of all intellectual revolutions in the history of mankind. It not only eliminated man's anthropocentrism, but affected every metaphysical and ethical concept if consistently applied. Edward Wilson, one time Southern Baptist turned evolutionary etymologist, said, Bitter experience has taught us that fundamentalist religion in its aggressive form is one of the unmitigated evils of the world. So this is not a, a polite dispute, though sometimes we you know, have polite exchanges. This is total war. British-Australian author and biochemist Dr. Michael Denton said, as far as Christianity was concerned, the advent of the theory of evolution and the elimination of traditional theological thinking was catastrophic. The suggestion that life and man are the result of chance is incompatible with the biblical assertion of there being the, their being the direct result of intelligent, creative activity. Despite the attempt by liberal theology to disguise the point, the fact is that no biblically derived religion can really be compromised with the fundamental assertion of Darwinian theory. Chance and design are antithetical concepts, and the decline in some religious belief can probably be attributed more to the propagation and advocacy by the intellectual and scientific community of the Darwinian version of evolution than to any other single factor. So when you send your kids off to the university, know that this is what's happening. And that's not by accident. It's not, it's not a footnote. It's an underlying philosophy pretty much in every department. The dominant Christian view had long asserted the overwhelming evidence of design present in the natural world. Christian apologist William Paley in his book, Natural Theology or Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity, written in 1802, a book that Darwin absolutely adored in his youth, said this, When we come to inspect the watch, we perceive that its several parts are framed and put together for a purpose. That is, they are so formed and adjusted as to produce motion, and that motion so regulated as to point out the hour of the day, that if the different parts had been differently shaped from what they are, if a different size from what they are, are placed after any other manner, or in any other order than in which they are placed, either no motion at all would have been carried on in the machine, or none 
which would have answered to the use that it is now served by. Every indication of contrivance, every manifestation of design which existed in the watch exists in the works of nature, with the difference on the side of nature of being greater and more, and that in a degree which exceeds all computation. In other words, basically saying my watch illustration is a very simple illustration compared to what goes on in nature. The Darwinian view allegedly found an alternative explanation for the apparent design. Nevertheless, even Charles Darwin, before he wrote on the origin of species, or I should say before he published it in 1859, he wrote it about 20 years earlier and sat on it because he knew what kind of revolution, or had some idea what kind of revolution it was going to produce. Here's what he said, though, many years earlier. How have all those exquisite adaptations of one part of the organization to another part and to the conditions of life and of one distinct organic being been perfected? We see these beautiful co-adaptations most plainly in the woodpecker and mistletoe and only a little less plainly in the humblest parasite which clings to the hairs of a quadruped or feathers of a bird, in the structure of the beetle which dives through the water, in the plumbed seed which is wafted by the gentlest breeze. In short, we see beautiful adaptations everywhere and in every part of the organic world. Secular historian Will Durant observed this about Darwin. It may well be for posterity his name will stand as a turning point in the intellectual development of our Western civilization. If he was right, men will have to date from 1859, the beginning of modern thought. That's how big a revolution this was. Dr. Cornelius Van Hill until summarized the conflict this way. The Bible requires men to believe that God exists apart from and above the world and that he, by his plan, controls whatever takes place in the world. Everything in the created universe, therefore, displays the fact that it is controlled by God, that it is what it is by virtue of the place it occupies in the plan of God, The objective evidence for the existence of God and of his comprehensive governance of the world by God is therefore so plain that he who runs may read. Men cannot get away from this evidence. They see it it round about them. They see it within them. Their own constitution so clearly evinces the facts of God's creation of them and control over them that there is no man who can possibly escape observing it. If he is self-conscious at all, he is also God-conscious. No matter how men may try, they cannot hide from themselves the fact of their own createdness. Whether men engage in inductive study with respect to the facts of nature about them or engage in analysis of their own self-consciousness, they are always face-to-face 
with God, their maker. G.K. Chesterton put it all in perspective. He said, it is not easy for any person who lives in our time, when the dust has settled and the spiritual perspective has been restored, to realize what the entrance of the idea of evolution meant for the men of those days. To us, it is the discovery of another link in a chain which, however far we follow it, still stretches back into a divine mystery. To many of the men of that time, it would appear from their writings that it was the heartbreaking and desolating discovery of the end and origin of the chain. To them had happened the most black and hopeless catastrophe conceivable to human nature. They had found a logical explanation to all things. To them it seemed that an ape had suddenly risen to gigantic stature and destroyed the seven heavens. Greg Bonson concluded, It appears then that two religious positions stand over against each other, the religion of humanistic autonomy and the religion of biblical Christianity. Each accuses the other of idolatry. The Christian must see the situation clearly. The choice between evolution and creation is at base religious. Nothing less is at stake than the charge of worshiping the creature rather than the creator. The answer to origins weighs idolatry in the balance. The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, according to Jeremiah, these shall perish. They are vanity, a work of delusion. Now I want to just point out a few candid admissions from some noted evolutionists, materialists, Darwinians. We can use these words often interchangeably, or at least they overlap. American paleontologist and evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould, who you'll hear cited frequently in the literature, was one of the best-known popularizers of, evolutionary, of the evolutionary worldview in the late 20th century, uh, and he is deceased now. And he observed this. Paleontologists have paid an exorbitant price for Darwin's argument. We fancy ourselves as the only true students of life's history, yet to preserve our favored account of evolution by natural selection, we view our data as so bad that we almost never see the very process we profess to study. Well-known geneticist Richard Goldschmidt acknowledged this. Evolution of the animal and plant world is considered by all those entitled to judgment. Uh, that means anybody that agrees with evolutionists, by the way. To be a fact for which no further proof is needed. But in spite of nearly a century of work and discussion, there is still no unanimity in regard to the details of the means of evolution. Sir Fred Hoyle, who you'll also hear frequently in this literature, who has long been recognized as one of the world's top mathematical astrophysicists, wrote this. I don't know how long it's going to be before astronomers generally recognize that the com combinatorial arrangement 
of not even one among the many thousands of bipolymers on which life depends could have been arrived at by natural processes here on Earth. Astronomers will have a little difficulty at understanding this because they will be assured by biologists that it is not so. And the biologists, having been assured in their turn by others that it is not so. The, quote, others are a group of persons who believe, quite openly, in mathematical miracles. They advocate the belief that tucked away in nature, outside of normal physics, there is a law which performs miracles, provided the miracles are in the aid of biology. This curious situation sits oddly on a profession that for long has been dedicated to coming up with logical explanations of biblical miracles. It is quite otherwise, however, with modern mathematical miracle workers who are always to be found living in the twilight fringes of thermodynamics. I will talk more about thermodynamics, but the idea that the world is running down, not increasing in organization and energy. So evolution, it turns out, is short on real evidence. Here is what some of the most renowned evolutionists have to say about this. Stephen Stanley, Dr. Stephen Stanley, American paleontologist and evolutionary biologist who is best known for his work on the theory of what's called punctuated equilibrium. We've got a problem in the fossil record. Um, fossils just appear uh, fully developed and no transitional forms. And how do we explain that with gradual evolution? And so punctuated equilibrium says that there was apparently relatively short and rapid evolutionary changes in the and that's why in the, so you might have millions of years with no changes and then something happens we're not sure what and then there's rapid changes we get those fossils and then we have another long period without changes <clears throat> he says this the known fossil record fails to document a single example of gradual evolution accomplishing a major morphologic transition and hence offers no evidence that the gradualistic model can be valid. Biochemist Michael Denton. Despite the tremendous increase in geological activity in every corner of the globe, and despite the discovery of many strange and hitherto unknown forms, the infinitude of connecting links has still not been discovered, and the fossil record is about as discontinuous as it was when Darwin was writing The Origin. The intermediates have remained as elusive as ever, and their absence remains a century later one of the most striking characteristics of the fossil record. There is no doubt that as it stands today, the fossil record provides a tremendous challenge to the notion of organic evolution because to close the very considerable gaps which at present separate the known groups would necessarily have required great numbers of transitional forms. Dr. Edward Blick, professor of aerospace, mechanical and nuclear engineering at the University of Oklahoma said, evolution is a scientific fairy tale just as the flat earth theory was in the 12th century. Niles Eldridge of the American Natural History Museum. It is, if it is not the fossil record which is incomplete, then it must be the theory. Cambridge instructor of biology Michael Pittman wrote, 
Herein lies a powerful tautology, a circular argument. The assumption of evolution is the basis upon which index fossils are used to date the rocks, and the same fossils are supposed to provide the main evidence for evolution. The fossil record itself, based on the assumption of evolution, is interpreted to teach evolution. By this sort of reckoning, the main evidence for evolution is the assumption of evolution. I'll wrap up with an extended quote here from Dr. Robert Jastrow, who was an internationally known authority on astronomy. Um, He wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. He's the founder and director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, professor of astronomy and geology at Columbia University, and professor of earth sciences at Dartmouth College. And he wrote in his book, God and the Astronomers, the following. The views of most physicists and astronomers are closer to that of St. Augustine St. Augustine, who, asking himself what God was doing before he made heaven and earth, gave the reply, he was creating hell for people who ask questions like that. (laughs) He continues, scientists cannot bear the thought of a natural phenomenon which cannot be explained even with unlimited time and money. There is a kind of religion in science It is the religion of a person who believes there is order and harmony in the universe, and every event can be explained in a rational way as the product of some previous event. Every effect must have its cause. There is no first cause. Einstein wrote, the scientist is possessed by the sense of universal causation. This religious faith of the scientist is violated by the discovery that the world had a beginning under conditions in which the known laws of physics are not valid and as a product of forces or circumstances we cannot discover. He's talking about the Big Bang Theory. When that happens, the scientist has lost control. If he really examined the implications, he'd be traumatized. As usual, when faced with trauma, the mind reacts by ignoring the implications. In science, this is known as refusing to speculate or trivializing the origin of the world by calling it the Big Bang as if the universe were a firecracker. This is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. They have always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, to which St. Augustine added, who can understand this mystery or explain it to others? Now, we would like to pursue that inquiry farther back in time, but the barrier to further progress seems insurmountable. It is not a matter of another year, another decade of work, another measurement, or another theory. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries.